0: Welcome to Burn News Current Affairs Podcast with Jeremy Deacon. Listen at your leisure on www.burnnews.com
1: I'm here with the Police Commissioner, Michael De Silva. Uh, Commissioner, many thanks for sparing some time uh, to be interviewed by Burn News. It's much appreciated. Um, There's quite a few topics uh, that I'd like to touch on today, if possible. Hopefully, we'll have enough enough time. Um, One of the things... Uh, particularly, is roads policing. Now, you probably know I've written columns for Bear News about this issue before, but I'm not a fan of the way people drive in Bermuda. Indeed. And uh, you were quoted some time ago, and it struck me that you came across as being quite frustrated that more hasn't been done, perhaps by government in particular, to try and fix the issues affecting uh, behaviour on our roads. Am I correct in that?
0: Well, I don't know if I uh, singled out the government, but certainly what, what I do um, subscribe to is that the state of driving on the roads is relatively poor. And I know, I know that's an unfair characterization because it's not based on empirical evidence other than that the um, number of collisions that we have, the, the types of serious collisions that we have, and the number of fatal collisions that we have,
1: also, we see it on a day-to-day basis ourselves with our own eyes.
0: Right, and, and I was going to say, I think anecdotally, there are enough complaints on a daily basis about, about driving behaviours that perhaps are not by themselves dangerous, but they just contribute to an overall poor driving standard that over time contributes to collisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some examples of um, pulling out in front of traffic, making people stop short, um, the infamous Bermudian Third Lane, mm-hmm. um, which is now grown to a fourth lane uh, yes, as on I the inside. as I, as I drive into the city mm-hmm. um, so our our approach has has been uh, one of community collaboration to attack the problem from as many different sides as possible. So I think it would be fair to say there is a lot of work that can be done from lots of corners of the community. Well,
1: this is it. There's a lot of work that can be done that hasn't necessarily been done. That's why I wondered if you... My perception was you came across as being slightly frustrated. For instance, I think the the Road Safety Working Group uh, was announced at the beginning of the year. We're now into December. And we still haven't seen any recommendations. When I sat down with the minister for a column on Burn News, and I'll quote, he said, the minister told me that his technical people are working with the police to get the right balance so police are comfortable with it. This is roadside testing. And what they're able to do in terms of power to stop. And still we see nothing. That is a sticking Mm. point with you on this? Well, let me just first of
0: all clarify that... um Frustration would be an overcharacterization of where I am with the government. Okay. It's, not, it's not my place to be frustrated with the government. It's my place to make the police service available um, for government collaboration and any other collaboration that, that would be helpful. The issue, I think, with the, um, well, in terms, in terms of the minister's working group, I can't speak to that at all because I, I don't share it, so I don't know um, why it hasn't met recently. Um, well, it's not that it hasn't met recently; it's just a year on, nothing's happened. Well, right. Um, in terms of the roadside breath testing, that mm. was your question. So, I think, I think the issue here, the sticking point, really, is to to have a to have a strategic decision made about what direction the country wants to go in when it comes to um, breath side testing. Mm. And there are a couple of different models in different places in the world. So there are a couple of options here. One is the random method Mm -hmm. uh, in which the instrument is used on the roadside to uh, randomly screen people for um, alcohol. There are now instruments that can also screen for drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, just for the record, and I've gone on record to say this, the the police are supportive of the random method. Mm -hmm. Um, because what that does is it is it creates a level of uncertainty amongst the motoring public mm. as to uh, whether or not they stand a chance of being caught. Mm-hmm. Um, we believe that that will provide the right level of motivation for people to seriously think um, about drinking and driving at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. I, I think it would be fair to say um, and this is not a criticism on the police because we're you know we have more to do at night than just look for impaired drivers. Absolutely. So, but uh, having said that, we can't be everywhere at the same time, and it would be fair to say that people generally see impaired driving in Bermuda as a low risk pursuit. Um, your chance of being caught, I I can't put a number on it, but it's not one in two or no. one in three. No, it's very low. It's very low. Yeah. Um, and I think as long as we're competing against that. We will struggle to get people to voluntarily change their behaviour, but but that's you know that's just one tool, mm-hmm. and and, and um, people don't drive in, impaired on a Friday night because they think they'll get away with it. Sometimes what influences the decision is um, they don't have far to go, and there are no real alternatives. Mm-hmm. So if you can't find a taxi, there's certainly no buses that run after twelve o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, you may not have started out with the very conscious thought i'm going to drive drunk tonight but you might end up in a situation you say you know what i've only got two miles to go can't find a taxi i'll risk it, I'll risk it. sure and, and that's what you need to but defeat
1: if, I think. if you started out by saying that it's quite a good deterrent if people know there's a chance they'll get tested yeah. by a roadside breath breathalyzer yeah. now as a, as a minister told me that the desired equipment has been identified and i go back to my original, the, the original point I was making, he was telling me that his tec- technical people are working with you guys to make sure it can work, that you're comfortable with the way it works. Is, is, where is the sticking point I'm trying to get at um, as to why this hasn't been introduced so, so far?
0: So I'm not sure is the short answer. I can't speak, I, I can't speak directly to the minister's comment because I'm not quite sure what he means. But I can give you my perspective. My, my perspective is we were consulted on the drafting um, of the legislation and it it wasn't the random method that they were proposing it, right. it it was um it was to just to provide the instrument to do a roadside test test as a preemptive uh formal test in the station oh, so okay. that's the other model where you just simply buy the instrument cause mm-hmm. you can you could order those online today and get them in the island tomorrow that's not the problem mm. the The problem is to is to decide on the best application of the instrument Mm -hmm. Um, and my concern with just buying the instrument is that that doesn't advance our ability to detect more cases of impaired driving so it doesn't increase the opportunity for uh, for being caught right and thereby it doesn't increase the motivation to make a different choice
1: so so where 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 are we generally at with the Uh, roadside breathalyzer? Uh, Well,
0: I don't know. Random or not? I I don't know. It it sits with the Ministry of Transport. We've been consulted. We've given our advice. Um, Perhaps our advice has uh, created uh, an opportunity for pause on the part of government who may be taking our advice into consideration. What
1: what was your advice?
0: Well, random is our advice. There are some concerns about random because of potential violations of... Uh, human rights. Um, We don't believe that's the case. We don't believe random roadside breath tests violate human rights, but there are other ways you can do it. So there are jurisdictions in the US, for example, um, who clearly have more constitutional freedoms than we do, and they've got more constitutional issues Mm -hmm. to think about. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they, um, they do two things. One is they select the nth car, so they they say it'll be the seventh car, not not random random, Mm -hmm. um, because the other issue with random is if you're not careful and um, if there's no no control measure on the officers, they could literally stop whoever they want. Um, And that could let uh, things creep in, like bias-based profiling and other things that we don't want any part of. So I, I do understand that concern. So what a lot of US jurisdictions have done is they have the nth vehicle, so every seventh vehicle, every ninth vehicle, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, and they publish where and when the checkpoint is going to take place. And quite frankly, I think that would work in Bermuda. Mm. It wouldn't make any difference if we say we will be on East Broadway between 12 AM and 3 AM on Saturday, the 12th or 13th or whatever it is of December, conducting roadside breath tests they will be random in nature every seventh vehicle will be stopped i think what that would do is people would walk out of the bars and nightclubs and think oh yeah they're doing a Mm. roadblock now arguably you could say well they'll just they'll just go around
1: go a different way well
0: yeah maybe one or two will but i think most will say i i can't take
1: that sort of chance also you'll probably find an awful lot of people won't see the notice frankly yeah
0: Oh, that's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know what, that would be more, in my view, that would be more
1: than fair to put that I out agree. there and say... So why aren't we doing it?
0: <laughs> I, I can't speak to that. It's not our call. That, that's the advice that we've given to the government and they're free to do with that what they, what so they
1: want. So are you, from a police point of view, are you happy to implement that, say, tomorrow if you were able to? Your strategy.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think I think that part of it is is the deterrent piece. Um, but as we've repeated in the strategy, which is really modelled the road safety strategy, which is really modelled after the gang and violence reduction strategy. If all you're going to do is throw handcuffs at this, it's, not, it's not going to change. I agree.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you, I, I think you've had that problem at the past, haven't you? Yeah. When the gang behaviour started, you weren't getting much yeah. cooperation because yeah. the perception was you were pulling people over, well, you were profiling people being pulled over.
0: Well, the other thing is we've, over the years, we've had various uh, enforcement, levels of enforcement in terms of uh, traffic tickets. So most people will remember the days where the traffic courts were filled to the brim, Mm -hmm. overflowing. We booked everything that uh, wasn't nailed down. Um, We issued thousands of tickets per week. Um, And statistically, there there is not a... Uh, significant difference in a number of fatal collisions over the years mm. um, so anyone that wants to suggest to me um, to bring back the traffic unit and the motorcycle police section because booking people works I can show you uh, empirically that that's not yeah, true sure. it's just
1: not true. Sure. Um, on a related issue um, same thing with speed cameras is, is there any progress on introducing those fixed or mobile they've been mentioned in the past?
0: So I've written that into our strategic plan as options to consider, recognizing that uh, that's not a that's not a police issue. we no. we, w- we wouldn't lead on that. That would be a Ministry of Transport but issue. But you you'd be responsible for carrying it out. Not necessarily. No. Not necessarily. In the UK, the police don't don't um, on the fixed one, Sorry, don't yeah. Implement mm-hmm. all of them. They do some of them, but they don't do all of them. Um, and I would suggest in the current in the current um, economic climate where we're actually laying off police officers, I can't take on any more responsibilities right now when I'm reducing the number of staff I have. But, but there are lots of ways to fix that. There's, there's a lot of automation in that system and in terms of technology what we've written into our strategy is that there are lots of options to think about. Um, we're not really endorsing anything just yet um, because you know there's a downside to speed cameras um they they have no discretion they're just ticket generating machines you have to be careful which is fine but i don't know that that necessarily has the same impact on changing driving behavior when you get a summons through the post it will make you quite angry but I'm not sure it'll make you stop and think about not speeding the next time. So I'm not saying they're not effective. I'm not saying there's not a place. I'm saying they're not the panacea. No,
1: it's one part of the jigsaw. It's one part. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything has to work together, yeah. isn't it? such as the roadside breath testing, such as the speed cameras, such as education, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I have to say, I'm going back to the UK quite soon uh, for a very short break. And I know that if I see a speed camera, I will slow down. Yes. Having said that, I know also I'll speed up again afterwards. Yeah. But they do they do work, I yeah. think. I don't want to get a ticket through the post. No,
0: absolutely. But, but um, one of the issues is that impaired driving sort of sits as its own um, classification of offence. And speed isn't the primary cause. It is a combination of yeah. speed and impaired driving. Absolutely, yeah. um, So if you don't reduce the impaired driving, I don't think we're going to see fatal collisions come down.
1: I agree. And, and the problem with impaired driving here is acceptable. It's socially acceptable. In the UK now, they've had such a successful campaign that you are a pariah. That's right. If you get into the car after you've had more than one drink, yeah. one drink, people yeah. will refuse. But we've never seen that sort of uh, educational um, program here, have we, in Bermuda?
0: We, we haven't. I mean, we have lots of initiatives, I think. Um, you look at Cotta puts on their 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 bus or their van that, mm. that takes people home. So you you have, I think, just like we found with the gang... Issue back in two thousand and nine, there's no shortage of people out there doing good work. Yeah, but there is perhaps a lack of a coordinated effort. It's or, not joined or, up or bringing that together. Absolutely,
1: this was. I was personally hoping that the working group, the road safety working group, would, would be the catalyst for that, but it doesn't seem to have happened. But that's my opinion. <laughs> you touched on it uh, very briefly earlier on about having to lay officers off. Yeah, your budget cuts have been fairly onerous to you, haven't they, over the last three years? I'm just. I don't know if you can remember, but it would be kind of interesting, if you can, off the top of your head, your budget in, say, 2009, what it is now as a comparison. Um, It has been onerous,
0: but the reason for that is because our budget is so front-loaded with uh, staff costs. So salary, overtime, benefits... Uh, accounts for eighty-five percent of our budget. I
1: know you're you quoted today. I think it, 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 to say we cannot do we cannot do more with less. With eighty-five percent of our budget allocated to salaries and benefits, a yeah. little fat left to trim from the operational costs. Yeah. Which leads me to the obvious question: You've trimmed down to the bone. Presumably, you're laying offices off. Yeah. Are we going to see more of that? Well, we started in two thousand and nine was the first austerity
0: uh, measures that we introduced. We started with uh, reducing overtime um, uh, interesting on overtime when i when I took over in two thousand and nine um, I paid a eight million dollar overtime bill for really? the, for the year before um, and this year we 've reduced that over the last few years we 're now down at fifty percent so well. We're spending about $4 million a year on overtime. Um, We reduced uh, the training budget as much as we dare to because we have a lot of training that's tied to accreditation. A lot of our training is tied to our firearms Mm -hmm. regime. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we were to simply cut that training, we would make ourselves vulnerable and Mm -hmm. liable Mm -hmm. uh, if we were to ever have a police shooting. So there are limits to what we can cut. Uh, But as I say, we started that in 2009. We've held that exercise every year since then, and we got to the point this year where we're faced with a 7% government, uh, Ministry of Finance, budget reduction target of 7%, 5% this year, 3% next year. Um, And last year we made up the 7% with the furlough day, which is about four and three quarter percent, which hasn't happened. Anymore. So I only had to find two and a quarter percent. It wasn't that difficult. Well, it's yeah. it always difficult, but yeah. Yeah, it was less difficult. Right. Um, don't tell the Minister of Finance that. He he will tell me <laughs> to look for more. Uh, but this year we've got to find the five percent all by itself, mm. and next year we've got to find the three percent yeah. all by itself. So so this this was the year that we got to the point where there is no more money that we can safely trim from operations without adversely affecting operations or without headbutting up against operational fixed costs. So an example is our our electricity bill. Uh Our electricity is a million dollars a year. Uh And the only way we could reduce that number is to close down some of the facilities that we have open. Uh You can't go to Belco and say, listen, can I take 10% off my electricity bill? It is a million dollars. So we can't reduce that. So that's what we ran up against this year. We either couldn't reduce it because it's a fixed cost, Mm -hmm. or we couldn't reduce it because it starts to make operations unsafe. Mm -hmm. And what that left us with was um, to either reduce the size of the payroll by making the cost of labour cheaper, reducing the salary and benefits of police officers, or if we can't do that, then reduce the number of police officers on the payroll. And you
1: chose the latter.
0: Well it wasn't our first choice no uh, we actually approached the uh, bpa the, yes. pl- the police association um they they uh, they weren't supportive of of taking voluntary reductions i had suggested things like straight time overtime in place of double time right um and, and not i didn 't suggest a pay reduction, because um, no one else in government is is, is being threatened with a pay reduction no. but just in terms of benefits just just looking at reducing some of the allowances, particularly around overtime, to sort of reduce that cost and they, they weren 't in favor of that since then. the Bermuda government has obviously entered negotiations with the bpa and they 're looking yep. to reduce the costs through through the negotiation process, but that 's not helpful to me because um, we're already more than halfway into our financial Correct, year. yeah. We've run out of time to save money, um, and we're now gearing up for next year's budget. So we've still got to reach the 5% reduction okay. target this year. So you haven't
1: reached the f- for, the, for this financial year, 15, 16? No. So how much more have you got to, to save?
0: It, it's hard to put a number on it. On the 1st of April, we were about $4.5 million short. Right. Um, uh, now, you can't say that's just payroll, because that, that's the total budget. So yeah. we had to reduce $4.5 million. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but as I say, it, it would have ended up that, that 85% of that reduction would have, would have had to come from payroll, yeah. uh, because it's just, just nothing else to cut. We have had natural attrition. We've mm. had officers resign, retire. Not been replaced. Um, we haven't replaced anyone this year. Uh, with one exception, we replaced the assistant commissioner's post. Uh, but we sacrificed the superintendents post for right. that, so we haven't replaced the superintendent. Right. Um, and by, I guess, May or June of this year, it was clear that we couldn't carry all the people on the payroll for the whole 12 months. We mm-hmm. only had about nine months' worth of salary. Um, so we uh, announced that 10 officers would not have their contracts renewed. We reversed the decision on one, Right. Uh, because of an administrative error the officer had already qualified for pensionable service. Okay. Um, so we, we, we corrected that. So that became nine um, and then uh, a month ago I informed seven officers that they won't have their contracts renewed and some of those officers are considering legal action. Right. So I can't comment any further on that. Fair enough, yeah. but, but nine and seven is sixteen.
1: But that so won't make up really four and a half million. No. So you've still got to make up, you've only got until uh, March 31st yeah. to make up the residue, and you've still got 3% for the following financial year. That's correct. At some stage, it's going to start impacting your police service's ability to operate, isn't it?
0: It depends. That Home. that really does depend. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. The other thing to throw in the mix is I've got 12 Bermudian cadets. I've actually got 13, but one is on our overseas education program so he's out of the mix for the next four years but when he finishes his program he has a five-year commitment to work for us. The cadets all have a three-year commitment to work for us so I've got 12 Bermudian um, uh, young Bermudians who who have either um, graduated from Bermuda College or about to graduate from Bermuda College that are expecting a job and I have, and you have a commitment, and to, I have a commitment to give them one. So that's extra payroll so for you. That's extra payroll, unless I make extra space for them. Uh, so that complicates it as well.
1: How are you going to do it?
0: Well, we we will... So I consulted with the Premier uh, early this year. He asked the same question, how, how many officers can you lose? And And the answer, theoretically, is we can operate on any number of police officers. But it's a question how
1: effective you're going to be. How effective,
0: and what are you not going to do? Yes. Um, so when I use the phrase in the strategic plan, we can't do more with less, that's not a swipe at the government. I'm just making it very clear that um, in real life, you cannot strip resources out and then add new responsibilities. No. There's, there's no way to, to cope with that. The best you can hope for is, as you reduce resources in terms of money and people, is to uh, re-engineer your operations so you're more efficient. That's the only way you can maintain the level. Um, and um, before I sound like too much doom and gloom, let me just let me just throw some perspective. You know, if you look at the the UK forces, the the forty three forces in England and Wales and then police Scotland which is one force but two years ago it was seven forces they've had far worse far worse than anything we've seen Um, and they had they each had 20% budget reductions in five years Um, and then up until about two weeks ago they had the threat of another 20% over the next five years Um, and then there was an announcement that in the comprehensive spending review in the UK that they're not actually going to uh, impose any more cuts on policing. Plus, also helps there's
1: been a significant uh, massacre in Paris. Well,
0: that's right. Um, Timing is everything, they say. Um, which leads me to the point that they're not having the reductions for now. Yeah. There's no promise that they're not going to have reductions. They're not
1: having them imposed <laughs> this year. The problem is, you know, IT technology advances can do wonders for you, but it doesn't always doesn't always reassure the people on the street, does it?
0: Well, that's And part of your job is reassurance, isn't it? It's absolutely reassurance. We moved to a single performance indicator uh, around 2010. Before that, we had um, 16 performance indicators. They were all crime-based. I didn't support that because it meant simply, if burglaries go up, we're doing badly, and if burglaries go down, we're doing well. That, that doesn't actually translate into, yeah. into, into anything real. Yeah. Um, burglaries go up and down for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with Absolutely. the police.
1: It might be who's come out on Westgate recently. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, so we thought, you know, what, what actually makes a difference here? And all of our research suggested that what makes a real difference is how people feel. How people feel translates into their attitudes, their yeah. behaviors, their decisions and their confidence in the police. So if you feel safe, then you'll trust the police. If you don't feel safe, then you won't trust the police. Part
1: of, that, part of that, for many people, is seeing a police officer. Yeah. Oh no, you're going to have very significant challenges in the next 18 months. Yeah, that's right. Are we actually going to see police officers on the street?
0: You are. Um, the strategic plan that came out today, and this isn't new, but we've sort of uh, put it at the front to make it more recognisable, is what our five operational policing priorities are. Mm. And this is a pretty bold statement. This is saying, if it doesn't fit in these five, we will seriously think about whether or not we should be doing it. Um, and it starts with enhancing public confidence. So having said that public confidence, public trust, is the, is the single most important uh, metric that we can use uh, in terms of our performance, then it makes sense that enhancing public confidence is, yeah. is job one. That's mm-hmm. priority one. Whatever we do, it has to build on the confidence of the public. Number two is um, highly visible frontline policing. We, we've learned some lessons the hard way. Um, as we've uh, gone into community policing uh, over the last decade or more, we've suggested that you know neighborhoods have to be empowered and they have to Uh, get together and they have to combine their resources and they have to fix the issues. Um, And that was a bad time to go into community policing when um, uh, neighbourhoods were were being riddled with gang violence and, and, you know, one shooting every ten days in 2010. I remember it very well. It was a bad time to suggest that communities needed to take ownership because they were looking uh, looking to the police for leadership. Absolutely. So we switched that strategy around a little bit. We put uh, community action teams into those neighborhoods, and we did the mobilization piece. And it's, it's worked. I mean, we've got neighborhoods where five years ago we would either avoid or when we went in there we'd go, we'd go in in strength. Right. And we'd go in there just to execute a police uh, job to, you know, search a house or, or arrest yeah. someone. And now we've got people on foot patrol right. in every neighbourhood in Bermuda. You know, there's no such thing as a no-go area in Bermuda. And that that isn't just about us. That's about the community being receptive and saying, thank you very much, where have you been all
1: our lives, Absolutely. come on in. But there were other, well, I don't want to go into it now because it's been touched on before, but there are other factors. You changed the way you, you uh, find people, didn't you, for instance, to try and get, get their confidence. But So there are other things at play. But... Yeah. Going back to the original question, really, I suppose, or the original uh, origin of this discussion is, are we going to see less police officers overall in the next 18 months? Because you're, you're so far against, backs against the wall with your budget. I don't think
0: so. I, I really don't think so. I mean, one of, one of the um, comparisons that's always thrown up at us is that we have uh, more police per population than yeah. anywhere else in the world. That's not actually true. There are places right. that have higher percentages. Um, but the sort of world average is, according to the United Nations, 212 police officers per 100,000 population. So that means we're probably double what yeah. we should be. Yes. Um, so you got plenty of fun to trim Yeah, <laughs> we've got, we got so many police officers, we can, we can get rid of half of them. The, the problem with that statistic is it's based up on a comparison, just a a flat comparison across law enforcement agencies across the whole world. and. If you look at the US, for example, that's a, that's a bad example because police forces in the US, most of their uh, work is about delivering frontline policing services. Everything else is nationalized. Right. Okay. They have sheriff's departments that, that run the jails, that's they right. have um, FBI that run the national uh, federal cases. They have, a lot of them don't have a marine section. Yeah. A lot of them don't have a training staff because there's a national or a state yeah. training facility. Right, yeah. So we've got all of these layers of policing business that we have to run because no, understood. we're the only understood. law enforcement agency obviously next to Customs, which has a, a law enforcement role. But you said you
1: don't think we'll have less police officers next year?
0: No, because we... So we've set these five priorities. We talked about public confidence. We talked about high visible frontline policing, responding quickly to emergencies. We know that's important. Mm. The public have told us that in all of the surveys that we do. That means we've got to have people on patrol who can respond quickly when when the alarm goes off. Um, Quality-focused investigations is important because if we don't demonstrate that we can investigate serious crime, solve serious crime, and hold serious criminals to account by bringing in the before justice then we won't get any confidence in the public and protecting vulnerable people combination of the very young the very old um, and the mentally ill that's what's important now we didn't make this up no, no, that, that's all based sure. on all of the public satisfaction surveys that we've been doing for the last few <laughs> years so if you put those five things out there and you say this is what we're going to put our resources into and then you find yourselves uh, directing traffic at a manhole because it's being constructed and you go on the list and you say well what on earth is this Absolutely, yeah. what's I got to do with yeah. all these priorities it gives us a case to be made that perhaps we shouldn't be doing that. I totally agree. And yeah. that will be um, the next step for me as we Sort of go through these jobs that we're doing, um, many of which we're doing for no other reason because we've always done them exactly since the seventies. Uh, A lot of these things are
1: historic, yeah. But because they're historic, they're very difficult to change. Yeah. you must know about change management. It's very difficult.
0: Well, there's two issues. I think there's there's the there's the um, the change management piece that stands all by itself. Um, but now this is possibly the worst time in Bermuda's history to try and give our work away to other people who also have reduced budgets. Absolutely. And more work to do and less people to do it with. What about and, privatizing? And all that. That, that's our plan. What the strategy says is that we'll make a recommendation to government, we'll do a proper assessment of some of these jobs and come up with some alternatives. And What, what kind of things could be privatized?
1: Well, I don't know about... CCTV's already privatized, isn't it? Yeah, in, term, in terms of the monitoring. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean... It might not just be privatisation. It might be also looking at transferring things that sit more appropriately with other government departments. But the type of things that sort of come to mind are things like um, our presence in the courts, right. where we've got police officers. Um, in the UK, and the US, the US there are no company. police officers. It's security all security. Company. In fact, in the US, it's private prisons. Yeah, in the US, it's sworn bailiffs. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not beyond the scope of imagination in Bermuda. Um, to to train some people to be bailiffs in a court and give them the the proper powers. Um,
1: the how th- likely is it then we're going to see some privatisation? Do you think? That's how long is a piece of string? I mean, it well, just not very long because you've got about <laughs> eighteen months to get your budget under control.
0: <laughs> in the immediate, yeah, you're quite right. In the in the immediate uh, term, that means this year, and in the next financial year, it might be that none of these. Um, None of these get out of the starting block. But now is the time. But you
1: might put the processes in place. Yeah,
0: now is the time to start. This is the best time to make the argument that, you know what, this isn't the cheapest way you can do this. This isn't the most efficient way you can do it. And the longer we have to keep doing these jobs, the less I can put resources into these five priorities. So if you want us to respond quickly to emergencies, we've got to dump some of these Sure. These just privatisation is a very dirty
1: word in Bermuda, isn't it? Because people associate it with government primarily, and they associate it probably with cost-cutting and therefore job losses.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's, um, that's true. Um, and it doesn't, I mean, it could, be, it could be, as I say, it could be transfers. Um, if you look at...
1: Um, it's probably the transfers. You're just pushing the problem over somewhere else, aren't you? Because the other department's got the same budget, budgetary constraints. That's what you, so come you can't up transfer. Yeah. You have to create something new yeah. and outsource it for a, for a, a cost that's cheaper than you're currently are doing. Otherwise, you won't save any money.
0: Yeah, or you prioritize. I mean, there isn't a lot of scope for that. I'll just give you one example. So years ago, when we had you know police officers uh, left, right, and center, and and cost of labor wasn't cheap. We used to um, what's the word? Escort. All of the oversized construction machinery.
1: That's right, right, yeah.
0: We haven't done that in that's very true. in five years. Yeah.
1: Now they just have a, a a trail of vans before <laughs> the front. Never mind. You think, but, what's the point of that? But, anyway.
0: but we we just don't need to do that. There's there's no public safety issue other than making sure that they take necessary steps no, I agree. to I get agree. their equipment safely through the road. Why are we tying up police officers to do that? So that's the type of thing I, I get that we're you. looking at. But,
1: you know, on, it's not privatization as such, but there wasn't. It wasn't that long ago. Well, it's not privatization, obviously, but it wasn't that long ago that uh, thirty regiment soldiers were sworn in as special constables. They ha- were not actually sworn in. Oh, what happened? Um, they
0: haven't completed the training. They, oh, they okay. started the training process. Um, so when will that be complete? Uh, hard to say. We're 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 trying to get it done by before the new financial year, or if not, then certainly within the first quarter of the
1: financial year. Because that will make a significant impact for you, won't it?
0: It will help. I mean, uh, you know, every little bit helps. It it was most helpful in 2010, where we struck up an MOU with Colonel Gonzales at the time, um, for his boat troop to come and help our marine section. That's right, yeah. So one of the first things I did in 2010 was I had an organizational realignment that pretty much quadrupled the resources in the Serious Crime Unit. Um, well, those weren't new hires, that no. came from within, yeah. and we really did strip out things like the roads Policing Unit, uh, uh, the Marine Section was cut in half overnight, um, and other bits and pieces to make up these numbers. But
1: That was a national
0: priority it was a national priority on the gang and guns yes, an yes. but it didn't reduce our obligation on the water particularly in the summertime. True. so it just seemed to make sense that really the the answer is to share resources so what we did was they uh, the regiment brought their boats and we would put one police officer with one or two regiment people and if we had If we only had four police officers, we could actually put four boats on the water. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, And that's the type. It just it got us to thinking. Well, actually, maybe there's some other things you can help us with.
1: Is is that where the idea of the regiment soldiers being sworn in as special constables came from? It
0: not not exactly. What happened with that is we we looked at the other areas, the other uh, the other things were uh, underwater search and rescue. One Mm. of the difficulties we have with that is when we shrunk the size of the marine section, um, the dive team is a voluntary outfit. So when when we had less people working in that environment, they had been transferred to uh, CID or the right. drug unit. Yeah. They sort of lost interest. So our volunteerism went down. Right. Right. Um, and like most technical skills, it takes a lot of time and money mm-hmm. to train people to get oh. up to that level. So, so that's an area that you can help us out in. Uh, the other one is explosive ordnance disposal. There's really two halves to that. There's, there's um, the, the unexploded munitions, so when World War II shells wash up and things like that, um, you don't really need a warrant card, a police warrant card, to deal with that. No. You, ne- you need to know how to deal with explosives yes. to deal with that. Absolutely, of course. Um, the only time you need a warrant card is when it's an uh, improvised explosive device and it's used in criminality. And we have a team that's that's trained to do that. So that's another area where okay. they can take off some of the, right. the burden. And then the other one was public disorder. Yep. Yeah. And it came to mind, really, as a result of the 2011 riots in London. Um, and the learning point there for the Metropolitan Police and, and any other police department that was watching was that overnight the dynamics of public disorder changed. And it went from uh, static demonstrations where people were demonstrating a cause or a principle, um, and then there was a violent clash, there was a flashpoint. Um, all of the public order tactics in UK policing are, divi- are designed to um, contain public disorder and disperse it. Right. They're not designed to chase Teenagers around the city yeah. who were smashing uh, windows in and grabbing televisions and and other consumables—they're not designed to deal with that because the equipment is so bulky. Yeah, uh, it's not meant to be a mobile thing. So they they were instantly overwhelmed in the UK, in the in the city of London, um, and and a couple of lessons were learned from that. And the lesson for us was, if we were struck with that type of public disorder in Bermuda, it would eclipse our ability to cope with it in about 12 hours, right. because after 12 hours we'd be looking to stand down the people that we had deployed against that, and behind them might be another wave, but behind them there isn't anybody else. Right. We looked at the 1960s model uh, of military support, uh-huh. which was exercised last in 1977 in the riots in Bermuda, and instantly thought, that's just not going to cut it. Um, those tactics are outdated. Yep. They probably don't even comply with European Convention of Human Rights. Um, you cannot just arbitrarily fire rubber bullets into a crowd or start launching tear gas all over the place that would not stand, withstand the scrutiny that we're under. Um, so we went back to the drawing board and what we came up with was, rather than try to make the military tactics of crowd control fit into the local context, why don't, we, why don't you guys just change your tactics and equipment and copy ours. Right, and, yeah. we, and we got agreement from the colonel uh, for that and we started a training program. And I know this is an incredibly long answer, but your question was about the special constables. Mm-hmm. That is a temporary measure to provide the legislative framework for soldiers to carry all of the weapons that they would require in public order. Right, okay. Um, because the only way they can do
1: that is under the Emergency Powers Act. Okay. So it's not designed necessary to take care of jobs that you think could be uh, day-to-day yeah. jobs that could be done by the regiment. No. I think that's the impression that was given at the time.
0: Yeah, no, it's just meant to be a temporary solution to get around that legislative requirement oh, okay. and longer term the idea would be to have legislative amendments that give the regiments special powers in special circumstances, not emergency powers, because that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. We're talking about um, civil police authority powers yeah. to deal with um, public, sure. public yeah. order. Okay.
1: All right, thank you. Um, you've obviously been aware, you must have been aware recently of some uh, pretty damning reports by the Auditor General. And it's a question I, you know, have to ask, want to ask. Have you been? Have the police been called upon to investigate any aspects of any of these auditor general reports?
0: Well, there's there's no real mechanism to do that. Um, the auditor general sim- simply um, submits a report yeah. with the findings. Um, so, unlike a regular crime, if you like, there isn't a complaint in that sense. Now, there are examples. Of specific incidents that are brought to our attention by individual people. Yes, but but this sort of global report, the mechanism doesn't work like that.
1: Okay, but but are you investigating any aspects of those reports? Have you been asked to investigate uh, any aspects? The of answer
0: is the answer is no and no, but possibly. So can you elaborate? So absolutely. So the way <laughs> the way it works is, um, we have a process that will go through that report to try and differentiate between facts that disclose, that tend to disclose breaches of uh, government policy, Hmm. like financial instructions, separate those from facts that tend to disclose breaches of law or criminal offenses. Yes. Uh, And as we go through it, if it's, you know, if it's not if it's if, if it's if it's not criminal,
1: then it's not clearly. It's so the possibly is the fact that you're looking at those reports. Yeah, you're looking at all, all of them because there's been several. It hasn't just been the last two Heritage Wharf and then um, the one before that about uh, general spending. Yeah, there's been others. Those are, those are, those are, the others have been around for a few years. You haven't investigated those yet. Any any aspects of those? Uh,
0: not directly, uh, not directly in as much as there's an investigation that fits within the Auditor General's report but there's information in the Auditor General's report that may be um, included in other inquiries.
1: So what, what what investigation, what other inquiries are you talking well, about? Well I'm
0: not going to link any of the specific ones and, and the problem is always... If you can talk in
1: general terms, I understand your difficulties yeah. but it's a very pertinent question I think, you know, if you can elaborate as much as you can.
0: I can't because the, the there's there's no way to describe what we're doing without pinpointing okay. the specifics. Of but there are there are just to
1: clarify. Then there are investigations that you're involved with that um, the Auditor General's report have had a bearing on.
0: There's overlap. There's, there's no a question. Yeah.
1: Is, there, is, is there any point in me asking you specific questions?
0: Not about those complaints.
1: If I ask you about Heritage Wharf. Okay, that was a no. <laughs> the commissioner is shaking his head in the no. I mean,
0: I mean so here, here's the problem. So we're, we're committed to um, giving the public as much information as possible. Um, six years ago, that wasn't the case. We had a pretty simple media strategy. Uh, it was one line, and, yes. it, and it was along the lines of, don't tell them anything. I remember. Um, sometimes that worked for us. Usually it didn't. And when it didn't work, it didn't work horribly wrong for us, so we, we abandoned that a long time ago. Um, so now we, we, we believe in open communication for a lot of reasons, not just public confidence, but actually the more information you put into the public domain, the less room there is for speculation, um, the less room there is for rumor mills and things like that. The problem that we rub up against is always around investigations because we have a, an obligation to keep information um, uh, secure yes. until such time as it can reach a judge or jury or magistrate. And unlike the United States, where they have a trial in the media first.
1: Yes, you have contempt of court, you and, have and, then they, and Then they go to court. Yeah. Um, we would just, we wouldn't. But re- generally speaking, I mean, in, in, in my um, career as a journalist, uh, proceedings generally are regarded to become active, is the word, once somebody's arrested or even charged. That's right. And so you can actually. Talk about things in general, investigation in general terms.
0: You can, but the problem is there are so many specifics in the public domain. Some are true, some are not true, some people don't know whether or not they're true, okay. that it's impossible for the police to now step in without being sucked right into that, that frenzy, um, and, then, and then everything we say will be taken as a
1: fact. Okay, well, I made a statement earlier on about the, the report of the General's report, and you agree. So we, we, we've got an understanding there. But I do know that um, uh, the investigation is still ongoing into the so-called JetGate affair. Yes. Where are you with that investigation now?
0: Well, I mean, there have not been any arrests. No, I know that. Um, No one's been charged, and we are still very much in the uh, process of assessing all of the material, which is in a form of a combination of witness statements and bank statements and other documents and emails. And we're still in the process of making our way through that, to try and determine if criminal offences. No, is occurred. that
1: investigation? Is that purely centred in Bermuda? Uh,
0: no, I think that's pretty obvious. This is in a, the states as well. There's a US connection. A US yeah.
1: connection. Uh, how many officers have you had working on it so far? Do you know? Uh, hard to say. Roughly.
0: Um, I mean, it doesn't work like that. We don't have teams of people. Uh, that just do one case we have a we have a fraud unit that has about okay. 10 people in it,
1: it the reason I yeah. asked is, is it, gives, it gives people a sense of um, how seriously or not I suppose the investigation is is being treated if you've got a very large team on it like you would say for a murder yeah or is it just a couple of officers doing a bit of work here and there
0: well I mean we're, we're limited so we, we don't have the option to put a 24-man team on a particular case, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly one that's likely to run uh, multiples of months, if not years. Uh, So all of the financial crime cases are shared by the Financial Crime Unit. Some have officers that um, dedicate 99% of their time on it. Uh, They'll be the SIO or the lead investigator. um, and, And they might have a couple of people uh, that work with them, so it, it's it's not like the UK system. We we don't have an inquiry team that's called the the, okay. uh, the jet gate team. It doesn't quite okay. work like that. Right. Right. Okay. But I mean, I mean, a, a more general answer is that type of inquiry normally has an SIO, a senior investigating officer, yep. a deputy SIO. Every case has those two people. That it is their responsibility to lead the investigation, and they will co-opt other members to do various things like. Here is uh, a box of banking records for the last three-year period. Can you go through and look for this, this, and this? So a team of four people will sit down until that task sure. is okay. done. All right. That's
1: I get I your point. How it works. I get your point. Okay. Um, just just moving on from all those things to so it's like it's a completely different subject, really. We've had the x-ray machine at the docks now for quite a long time. Now, I know that's the purview, really, of uh, HM Customs and immigration, but obviously you'll have... Some information about it, I just wondered has it, has it been worth it? Has anything actually been discovered because I, I never heard anything about yeah, it yeah i, I don 't actually know to be honest mm. um, because guns are still obviously getting in here, and people said at the time, well, why aren 't we x-raying all the uh, all the goods that come in yeah. through the docks, but since then there has been silence yeah i don't know How are guns getting in then
0: well um, we know both anecdotally through community intelligence and also through some of the seizures that we've made, um, the uh, cruise ships are vulnerable targets. Um, Certainly the container ship is the most recent example that we've had. Um, And in terms of ammunition, uh, there's some evidence that small quantities of ammunition uh, are used more through the uh, through the airport, whether that 's the air there 's been quite a few seizures or whether that 's passengers yeah. so
1: are you working more closely with customs, and are you actually got teams working with customs absolutely. to target these areas yeah. absolutely so how long have you been doing that for quite some time presumably
0: well we 've had a formal relationship with customs for probably since probably the eighties I would think right but it it was all around drugs. Right. And in the last few years, um, it's been less about drugs and it's been more about about guns and
1: ammunition. Would you you favour routinely arming the police?
0: Yeah. No, not at this point.
1: Not at this point.
0: So all of our decisions around arming police officers are based on a series of protocols. So unlike the US and Canada, where officers are just routinely armed, It's based on the premise that the level of threat, the nature of the threat, is um, such that you can expect that every police officer uh, 24 hours a day is at risk. Mm. We can't say that here, and that's a good thing.
1: Right, okay.
0: Um, And in the UK system of law enforcement, um, the threat assessment is what drives the deployment of firearms. Right. Um, so we would have to demonstrate that there is a credible threat okay. that's been elevated that we all require 24-7 well, that's, that's coverage. That's good news. I think so. That's good I news, think it's yeah. good news. Yeah. Um, and
1: there was a very alarming case, obviously, where the police officer was shot at.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, the, there's, there's no way to get around the fact that policing is inherently uh, a dangerous job or is there, there is a level of danger attached yep. to it. Um, and the the only reason we would arm everybody is because the threat is against everybody to such a level that we yeah. need that sort of protection. But
1: it's be a guarantee of harm almost really. Yeah.
0: But but just I think this is an important point because I've been asked this question a lot of times. Um, you know there are no examples where in any in any law enforcement agency where arming the police has made them safer.
1: No. So, look what happens in the states. That yeah. Clearly, isn't
0: the case. It gives them another use of force option to use, um, but the danger is, and and you know the Americans don't have this um, this feature in their criminal justice system. The first question we have to answer when we use a firearm is why was the officer carrying the firearm to begin with? Right. And if you look at a lot of the UK examples where the cases. Cases of police shooting that have been taken to the European Court of Human Rights. The point where where the complainant has won the argument is where the police probably didn't need to be armed in the first place.
1: Right. Okay. Because the level of threat wasn't deemed to be sufficient to arm the police.
0: Um, And that's that's a big chain around our neck. That's that's a lot of weight to carry. It is. Before we even deploy the officer, the question is (laughs) why are you
1: deploying a firearms officer? It's a terrible Catch Twenty Two, actually. Yeah. Because the threat has to rise significant, yeah. significantly, therefore putting your officers at significant risk before yeah. you can actually begin to take yeah. counter-offensive measures. But the but <laughs> and,
0: and, and absolutely and, and from a law enforcement officer, you think that's really not fair. If, if you sort of just step back for a second, look at the look at the human rights element of it. The police made a mistake, and now my son is dead. Yeah, that's the problem. I've covered yeah. it, a
1: police shooting where yeah. exactly that happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well the ramifications are huge, um, huge.
0: So to 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 guard against that, decisions about arming police officers are all about threat mm-hmm. threat assessment. Okay.
1: Just again, they're just general questions, but I, I've never spoken to you before about them. But um, one of the things that keeps coming and going is this issue of double jeopardy. Uh, the UK now has a double jeopardy rule. Would you like to see that here? Uh, so you can be tried again if new evidence right. comes along.
0: Um. I can see what the attraction would be. I don't hold a personal or professional view specifically. But well,
1: what would the attraction be then, do you think?
0: Well, I think the attraction would be that uh, you have an opportunity to hold someone to account who wasn't previously held to account, and, and under, the, under the present system you're not able to hold them to account. So I understand the principle, but I've never given it a lot of thought. I have
1: to say, well, it's been a, it's been the subject of a few discussions over the last few years, and there are we can all think of one outstanding case um, that never seems to leave us alone. Yeah, but I just want to throw it in there, and, and again, you know, again, just in terms of a general discussion, it's been a bit of a bugbear for mine for quite a while personally. That we never see any inquests in Bermuda. And I know it is to do with the Magistrates Court, but obviously, you know, the implications are much wider than that. Would you like to see personally more inquests being held in Bermuda?
0: I mean one thing that I did was to try and work with the courts to get the backlog of inquests pushed through right um because that that was that was a bit distressful uh,
1: Well, it's really stressful for the family yeah as well, isn't five
0: it? or six years ago we were i mean we were in the multiples of dozens really behind i mean we at one point we must have had forty or fifty wow, cases realize. that were all open at the same time um and you know, that's just unacceptable. Whether it doesn't matter if it's a gang-related gun shooting or whether it's a fatal road traffic collision, you've got to get to the to the bottom I of totally that. I totally agree. Yeah, um, but
1: we don't seem to have that now.
0: I mean, I you know that's that's the purview of the of the senior magistrate. I can I, I agree, I can but you can only do, do you... assume that he looks at the cases and says, you know, there there isn't anything that I can. Uh, benefit from in, in this case because the the information that's been gathered points to a clear cause of death and that, that's, that's his option to do that
1: I guess, as you said before though it's, it's important that you get to the bottom of these things and sometimes the best way to get to the bottom of these things is an open public court
0: yes, but I can see the other argument, if you're just going to go through that process, just to go through that process, then how do you justify the time and the energy that goes into it when the magistrate has said, "This is the cause of death, and I'm satisfied." And I. That's
1: kind need of interesting, isn't it? I, th- I mean, this is just a general discussion, but there was an inquest uh, I think earlier this year or late last year, uh, a former colleague of mine who died of a heroin overdose, and it was revealed that the EMTs couldn't use a particular drug to bring him around without permission of a senior doctor, or right. the senior doctor actually had to do it. But it would never have been brought to light had it been left to the magistrate signing a. Signing yeah. off on a form. Yeah. Okay. And my very last question: uh, Police service or police force? Which one do you prefer?
0: Well, we provide a service. I mean, we're, we're not a, we're not an occupied force. We 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 don't we're not the military. We don't we don't order people around. Um, I mean, you know, there was a time that I used to think it was just semantics. Um, because what difference does it make what the title is? What, what the difference is, is how you deliver the services to the public. And it depends what your ethos is. If you think that uh, policing is about a show of strength and it's about um, marshalling people's behavior around, and, uh, then maybe we should be a force. I don't subscribe to that view. I think we police by consent. I'm very clear that we have 400 police officers and 65,000 citizens. We would lose the fight if the public ever decided, thank you but no thank you. We've had enough of you. We would not win that fight. Um, And we decided uh, when I was appointed very early on um, that we would run a police service that delivers policing services to the community. And um, I think we've demonstrated that over the years as we've moved our priorities to what the public are saying this is what we want you to do and if uh, if uh, feeling confident is what they want and responding to emergencies is what they want and this is what they're saying then that's what we should provide and, and therefore I think it's not appropriate to
1: use the term force. Okay on that note Commissioner thank you very much for your time. Thanks you very much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Burn News Current Affairs Podcast with Jeremy Deacon. Listen at your leisure on www.burnnews.com, your 24-7 Bermuda News Source.